Hello everyone, welcome back to the left page. Yay, we're here uh, again, uh, another another week. Uh, today we have um, a pretty tricky one for me. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's it's gonna be something. As always, I am Frank, your historian on call. I'm excited about this and you'll soon see why. Yeah. I'm Bruno, a man of letters, <laughs> and it's actually, I will already begin this episode by saying that I had a real tough, a really tough time with this book. It, it was not hard or it was not that I hated it, it was just that the nature of the book actually got me in a way that I read it almost like in a somnambulism way, like somnambulist <laughs> style. Uh, I read it and I had many literary and aesthetical impressions, but uh, I think maybe Frank will guide guide our way, uh, us and I, through this the whole story and the book, but I'll do my best. Yeah, no, sometimes <laughs> we just get these works that like we enjoy, but we have a bit more difficulty and it's just, yeah. it doesn't click as much. Exactly. Like I had yeah. that with Doom. Like, I, I think it's good, I think it deals with some things amazingly, but it was just such a slog to read <laughs> at times. Uh, but it's good, I, I recommend it, in spite of it all. I, I think I just, I don't know, I don't know. But, yeah, in any case, maybe some other time. For now, for now, we're going to talk about a very, <laughs> very interesting, very classical novel. Yeah. Although, it, it's definitely a weird one, and it's a feel that I've been enjoying to get into <laughs> today's fantastic novel is the picture of dorian gray yeah. by oscar wilde from 18 the 1891 version uh it's worth mentioning because the original was published in 1890 but it was then uh, sort of reviewed and critiqued and all that and expanded even yeah. in a publication as a book the following year yeah. So we're going to be mostly mentioning the 1891 edition, although I uh, the edition I read, which was from Penguin, had many interesting, useful notes that pointed out some of the differences between the two versions, things that Wilde changed, things that the editor changed. So it's pretty pretty good basis for us to do this as well. First things first, you want to maybe, I don't know if you, if you like, I think that uh, preface is very useful and I think it's worth mentioning. Uh, just to introduce a bit of like wild and then and then we can sort of like go to the novel and I'll give it a brief summary so we can dive into it. Okay. Uh so yeah, the the preface is almost like a literary not contract, but like uh a, a small essay in uh <laughs> in a way of talking about art and talking about literature in a general way. But he has this such genius in certain phrases about art as pure expression and it's really uh we were talking um before we started recording how uh it, it even applies to today because we as humans will always be prone to be basically unethical or commit certain mistakes and mm -hmm. and things like that but i love the the point of view of wild that says that there's no such thing as a immoral book there's only well written or badly written books <laughs> and i love that because it's it's the almost like the tragedy uh, the tragedy and the sort of blessing of of human expression that is uh we can commit mistakes mm -hmm. and we can uh also express ourselves in beautiful ways and and do things like this very book and i uh, i think that it resonated a lot with me the the preface because i was talking earlier as well how i the the time that i read the novel from Albert Camus, it's The Stranger. The Stranger. The Stranger, yeah. It was a book that the first half I was almost killed of boredom. <laughs> and because it's so tricky and almost like a greasy type of reading. And and it, it gets to a point where, uh, I, I will not give spoilers, but the second part of the book, you sort of start reading and then you like... Oh, uh, I got 
I, now I understand why it was so so difficult to read, and I understand <laughs> that it needed to be like this. And I actually the my experience with with the portrait of Dorian Ray is is, is the same thing because the portrait the picture yeah uh, I make <laughs> uh, that, that, that same yeah but there are, there are uh, on the internet there is picture and there is portrait and <laughs> it just drives me crazy but with this book uh, in in any case it was sort of the same thing like I read it and the the aesthetical choices and the general conversations in the book were so futile at times and so I don't know maybe vain that I couldn't it, it was not a normal reading experience to <laughs> to be honest it was just like you know when you read five pages and then you just uh do the the <laughs> the slow blinking and then you like oh I just read five pages and I don't remember what I just read <laughs> it it was almost like that but every time that I did this and every time that I went on with the book I came back to the preface and reread the preface and I'm in a sort uh, kind of a weird spot because I like the experience, but I don't think I like that much the book. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's it, it's kind of kind of messed up, but anyways. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the book. I think it was really interesting, and I I do find it more and more. I'm loving the gothic. It's so much fun. Yeah, so much fun, and this especially, it's like such an acid representation of Victorian society. Yeah. Like, it drips acid, <laughs> even if it's subtle at times. Yeah. Because, like, we get, like, Oscar Wilde, like, he's thought out as this radical sort of controversy. Uh, uh, this wild man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this figure riddled with controversy and all that. And the the thing about this preface is that he mentions that, like, Art and the book, it doesn't mirror reality, it mirrors the spectator. And that's something that comes up later in this actual, the actual novel. And he does mention it, that like, it's almost as if he's putting a mirror towards like the English society, the Victorian society of imperialism, of violence, but yet, that yet, the thought itself as this high moral ground, high artistic values, yeah. and yet was absolutely fucking hypocritical and horrible. Yeah. And it's almost like he's like putting a mirror to them and they're not liking what they're seeing. And that's even more uh, violent, if you will, because like he's Irish. He is oppressed by the actual English society <laughs> itself. Yeah. So it's almost like he's putting a mirror towards his oppressed and seeing like, like, they're not liking what they're seeing. Yeah. So they're criticizing him and not, like, the book or the <laughs> novel because that's... So the... his, his point is proven, basically. Basically. <laughs> that, the, the, basically, he proves his own point. Yeah. And I think that's a very good argument. I yeah. agree with him. Yeah. Uh, because it is. Their artistic, their moral pretenses are absolute fucking hypocrisy. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's 1891. Like... We've been through most of the 19th century and we're approaching the the major world wars. And especially the first one of like a, an imperialist war, basically. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> it's this hypocrisy of like, no, we're doing this for humanity, for <laughs> development, for, for progress, and, yeah. for art and for all that. For the good of people. And, and not for our own self-interest <laughs> of Richness, power, control, dominating the world. Yeah. Uh, you know, no, it's not about that. It's about <laughs> art. It's about morals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And that's even more scathing because, like, it's this... The focus in this novel is, like, it's this aristocracy that has lost all point and purpose. Like, they're basically, like, meaningless. Yeah. They're, they're decadent. They're without reason or sense. They're shaken. It, in all senses of the world, <laughs> and just sort of free falling, basically. Yeah, it's it's astonishing, and it, it, it's again interesting to think of Wilde as like uh, trying to get this out, like the dandy and this his presentation, that classical picture of him with a fur coat. Yeah, <laughs> like that's maximum dandy, but it's also in relation to like this critique and this position in front of like being something else or having different positions against the society but the record show points it out as like no you're 
you're being hypocritical. <laughs> you're saying all this and doing the exact opposite yeah. on your own words and positions. So it's really interesting. So that's like sort of the general gist of like the times and himself. It's uh, worth mentioning like, uh, and we'll get into this as we're talking about the novel because it's it's mentioned by in the exact terms that that it's studied and thought out, which is like the fin du siècle. It's like the end of the century, yeah. And it's sort of this whole spirit of like decadence, of collapse, of the end of the world. We're like in, in lieu of this industrialism of the bourgeoisie and the imperialism. It's all like there's no point to this sort of this old art and things and the whole modernity yeah it's all collapsing yeah and this is basically the whole tone of the novel yeah <laughs> uh, of this decadence this fin du siècle and fin du globe the end of the century and the end of the world really <laughs> uh, so to the novel in the novel we have I, I, I think I made it, sadly, I described it on Twitter. It's like, I was reading an interesting story about a young man who's obsessed with his portrait. <laughs> and it all ends up being tragic and horrible. <laughs> Basically that. Yeah. Uh, we have the young, beautiful man, uh, Dorian Gray. Yeah. And he's vain, he's innocent. He has an artistic friend, a fantastic painter by the name of Basil Howard. Can't get his name right. <laughs> uh, who actually like sort of worships him for his beauty and calls him like the meaning for his art and his painting. Who it's, brought it's him almost like, like the model that became a muse. Yes, oh. very much so. Yeah. And however, uh, Basil has a friend who is Lord Henry Wotton or Harry, who is like this perfect like aristocrat and decadent, <laughs> and he espouses this sort of self-indulgent. Hedonism, and in a way, the Basil paints this portrait of Dorian, and Henry talks to talks to Dorian for a bit, and like sort of pushes him towards this hedonism by valuing his beauty and how his beauty and his youth are everything. All else is meaningless. Love, money, wealth, knowledge, bah. No, it's this beauty and this youth that will allow you everything, that yeah. will give you everything. Yeah. When you lose it, you will lose everything. Yeah. And <laughs> it leads Dory in some interesting ways <laughs> uh, to the point where when the portrait is finished and he goes to see it, he says it uh, almost like this. It's slightly longer, but I carry like the very sense. If it were I who was to be always young and the picture that was to grow old, he basically proclaims it when, because like he's saddened by he sees his astonishing picture of himself, and whether knowingly or unknowingly, he says they would he would give his own soul in order to maintain <laughs> yeah, his beauty. Yeah, so that we're the talking painting how how Faustian that is. Like, please, <laughs> if someone can hear me, like I give my soul away. <laughs> Just give me my beauty. Yeah. <laughs> And yet, and that's basically what happens. Like the, again, the gothic moment in this is just—I I, love it because, like, the whole thing is sort of foreshadowed. Yeah. That there's something strange about this particular <laughs> painting, and then when Dorian sees it, he's like, <sighs> "Yeah, yeah." And th that's what happens. Although he finds out a little bit later, and so in, in lieu of that, he goes through <laughs> various moments of debauchery and vice and sin and love and scandal and mostly sort of guiltless uh, <laughs> however that's what happens for every sort of sin and violation and even age the painting carries those burdens yeah. while he himself remains pure yeah only in sort of appearance like uh the way that the novel ends up describing it the painting becomes a, a true mirror or a true window into his soul. Yeah. So if it's bad and ugly and with hands covered in blood, then it it, it is all quite literal. Yeah, it will show there. So Dorian acts on that and has this whole adventure, and things go bad. There is violence. There is death, and we will get to that. But it's basically <laughs> like man makes the impact that he's not aware of goes into life of hedonism and debauchery ultimately dies on account of that in a very interesting way uh, but we'll get to that yeah 
first things first, I think what I would just want to sort of get out of the way first so we can go into the more fun stuff. And I, th I think you mostly agree, because like, although there's this whole thing about Wilde being sort of wild and questioning of society, of this Victorian society and all that, I do feel a sort of, and this, again, it doesn't mean that that's his exact position. Yeah. Uh, there's one thing, is like the position that the novel espouses and even the narrator and all that. But and another the position that the actual author espouses. Those are always different things. Yeah. <laughs> always worth mentioning with a stern expression. Yeah. Even though sometimes they conflate and those things are evidently related, those are different things. And especially in the novel, I do get a sort of uh, the, there is a moralistic tone yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah. Because ultimately, this whole society of the vice of this discovery, this exploration of sort of <laughs> drugs, sex, and rock and roll, yeah, yeah. with the exception of rock and roll. Uh, <laughs> drugs, sex, and classical music. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of very damaging to him, and the whole idea of sin. Yeah. So it has sort of like this society, this sort of glazing, shining uh, possibility of exploration and experimentation but that ultimately is doomed. This society or this perspective is sort of doomed from the start. Yeah. And I think that is also very important. Yeah, because it's uh, this whole moral tone is the basic, it's like the basic rule of the whole novel. It's like by the means of whenever you cross those moral lines, the picture of Dorian Ray becomes grimmer and grimmer. Yes. So, uh, as you were saying, it's... And for Wilde, that's especially not the case because he was trialed and he was accused of... Uh, he was an homosexual. Writing an immoral book. Yeah, writing... Those sort of things. Yes, those sort of things. And so, that's basically... It, it would be actually stupid to say that he is trying to... Uh, go through with this message of oh you should do the best moral things to become mm -hmm. a, a normal person but that's it, it, it's the same thing as we were talking about uh, Blade Runner yeah. the book it, it, the the book is really more conservative mm -hmm. and it doesn't mean that Philip K. Dick was a, a conservative person yes. it, it just means that inside the logic of the novel Blade Runner, but the case here as well, in the case of this novel, inside the society that the, those characters live, that's basically the rule, that's the coin of, of exchange there. Yeah. If you pass those lines, then bad things will happen to you, and it doesn't mean that uh, Oscar Wilde thinks this as well, it just, he it, it just knows that the world has treated uh, him like this, so mm -hmm. it, it's uh, it's a good way even to use conservative discourse to talk, to basically criticize conservatives in a general way. Yeah, he basically likes, he, he goes like this, so these are the rules that you supposedly judge and say this is the morality that you so apparently that you espouse and defend. So, if you are actually judged by them, this is what would happen. Exactly. And yet... That's the point, yeah. Numerously throughout the, the actual plot and the novel, there's very little of... Even though there is a sort of tragic and ultimately fatalistic ending that was of his past in the very beginning, etc., etc., numerous times, some sort of traditional, romantic, hero, uh, sort of heroic paths were sort of denied yeah. through the most feeble ways and uh, uh, like we can get to that but it's sort of like I think it's very much that which you just mentioned that like using this conservative position to sort of undermine this conservatism exactly. it's like so these are how you judge all else, all others and society and the world and all that so if you were actually judged by them mm, <laughs> things wouldn't end well would they <laughs> yeah Again, with the idea of the mirror. It yeah, seems to be exactly. a valid and positive way to think of the novel, sort of extrapolated, really. So, <laughs> I think, uh, especially to, to talk about this, to carry on with this particular point, 
I, I just need to go back a bit on the plot, which I didn't mention, so we can talk about that. I'm going to talk about James. Okay. Uh, I want you to talk about James okay, as well, because okay. uh, <laughs> I just realized something interesting. Earlier on, before the official or sort of full-blown turn to sin and debauchery that Dorian goes, he meets this woman who is an actress, a sort of two-bit low-income uh, actress, but that is apparently beautiful and incredibly talented, whom he falls in love with and tends to marry and all that, but he rejects her at like the final at the last moment because when she found love she couldn't act anymore yeah. because she couldn't give that acting the love that she truly felt exactly. so it was sort of meaningless so she became a bad actress yeah he, the, and then he goes to the to the actual play that it was like the first time that she basically does a really bad acting and he just like uh, I will not marry this. this woman. Yeah, he is humiliated because he he brought his friends. He bought Lord Henry and Basil, but it just they're like, oh, she's she's beautiful, but she she's a terrible actress. <laughs> and he he mentions how he's a, a torture, a fucking slog to watch <laughs> the entire play because it was dreadful. And when he when he goes to talk to her later, she she's like, oh, but my love and all that, and he. Like he bashes her. Like I, I wrote it down. He's a horrible, heartless monster. Like he's cruel. Well, uh, he's cold. Uh, absolute Chad. He just like you're such a fucking bad actor. I don't even like you anymore. He's monstrous. And and she's like ble pleading to him that like please take me with you and all that and like, and like no. The next day he's like sort of remorseful and all that because. Later that night, again, all it's all due to his own ego. Like yeah, the entire yeah. novel's yeah, about that. Exactly. And in the ending, when he's like, before the very end, he's like, "No, I, I guess I should probably reform after all that." And he tries to do a good deed. It's it's not a good deed. It's not his ego. Yeah. It's like no, but but this is a good deed. Yeah. I am being good and moral. <laughs> oh. Uh, he's not. He's just being a cunt. Yeah. Uh, and again, when he finds out that the picture has changed and it has a cruel smile, he sort of no, but I should change. I should go back to her and all that. And the next morning, he finds out that Sybil took her own life. Yeah. Because of her grief, her pain, and being utterly and brutally rejected by whom she loved. Yeah. Because she became a bad actress. Uh, so that's bad. <laughs> uh, and then, like, he goes, well, I guess I can't redempt, so guess I'll just go into it. It's fine. The painting will take the burdens, and I will be immaculate. Yeah. And so he does. And so time passes, uh, and things happen. However, before that moment, uh, we had a, a scene between Sybil, who is this actress, and her brother, James, who was to take part in the Navy and go to Australia, which was, again, colony. Uh, <laughs> and... He vows that he, if he, if Dorian hurt her, uh, although he doesn't know her name, no one knew, no one in uh, Sybil's family knew his name. He, she only referred to him as Prince Charming, <laughs> and he would vow to hurt him and kill him and hunt him down. And many, many years pass, and this is like sort of like the ending point of the novel. Yeah. Like through chance, James overhears someone calling Dorian Prince Charming. He confronts and threatens him, and he's like, "No, but how could I be that person?" It's been Sybil, almost twenty it, years. It's been eighteen years since she died, and I'm like still very young. Like I couldn't be that person. But then, like the person who, the woman who had called him uh, Prince Charming, later tells <laughs> tells James that like, "Oh, uh, but no, that that was him. It, it, it was the same man. It doesn't matter how, but it's him." And then James like, shit, he ran away. Uh, and he goes to search and hunt him. And through a bizarre hunting accident that Dorian almost stopped, like Dorian has this sort of uh, premonition that like, no, don't shoot, uh, to his hunting partner, that kills James. Yeah. And Dorian is saved by that, but he was almost not by his own hand. So he's like, oh, that, that, that worked out. And the whole point is that in the sort of more traditional heroism and play, like, Dorian would be taken down by the original person whom he had hurt, which was James. So 
but he doesn't. James doesn't hunt Dorian down. He's, it's almost like he would, but yeah, he's he's perma saved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and in uh, and, and and that's I think the the whole point of this novel being so centered about his ego is that that's the whole point. Like if he's immaculate and always beautiful in a society where beauty and sort of this uh high uh, sort of this um basically the it's not even uh and we can get uh, deeper in that as well but it's not even about uh, monetary power and anything like this but being uh good looking in general and, and it, it it's sort of like a kind of power yes and it, absolutely. especially in this kind of aristocracy and and this this sort of arrangement this social mm -hmm. arrangement and it's that that's the whole point why at the moment that he should be killed and things should work <laughs> as normal things work as it would be moral yeah exactly it's just like oh but since he is always like perma saved by his aesthetics and by his this kind of pact that he did he just continues to be the same person and that's what saves him yeah he <laughs> basically he, he walks away like unscathed most of the time exactly yeah uh we have again like he goes through this society and through this power of youth through blackmail through coercion he basically leaves both a trail of misery and scandal and pain and also bodies behind. Yeah. And it starts with Sybil. It all starts with her. And in a way that is almost like to truly dive into like this hedonism, which is, again, sort of filled of a terribly staunch materialism that is all about the individual, the ego. It's like... Oh, but it, uh, uh, Lord Henry mentions it like, oh, but it's such a tragic way for her to go. Like, it's all that she would deserve and get. I'd like to be loved and then rejected and then take her own life almost as Ophelia of Shakespeare, who driven mad by her rejection and pain. Yeah. And it's, it's very weird and very strange, uh, this almost game between like the relationships between art and fiction or art and reality and because like it's all a fiction it's all a novel yeah but the way that life and death in this novel is sort of very raw and very painful and very real yeah in the sort of sense of the word but the way that these characters of this hedonism look at it they see it through a perspective that there's no it's like oh no this was a tragic this was like a play yeah and it's almost like a devaluing of reality for this fiction or for this art. It never gets to them. Yeah, exactly. They are entirely detached from yeah. it. Like the real life consequences of it, the pain, the grief, it all like doesn't matter. Yeah. The most that like Dorian gets is a bit of guilt. Yeah. And not even that much. And as you said, it's like, oh, I need to retreat myself because I need to show like... I, I don't know Henry or I need to show society or at least to myself that I'm a good person yeah so but if you think about that you're not doing for good you're doing for yourself and for the entitlement of self-entitlement of being a good person which is completely bullshit yeah like <laughs> he wants the validation of the painting as well exactly he wants the painting to show him how he is great how he is magnanimous exactly. how he is perfect but it couldn't really ever, either for him going too deep or because he doesn't do it for the right reasons. He does it for his own ego. Yeah. And it's interesting because he does look in the mirror quite often and he sees like his perfection. But he wants the validation from the mirror, from his own soul. Yeah. Despite it being absolutely corrupt. Yeah. To To the point where there is no real return. Like... The painting is old, or the picture of him is old. He's sort of ragged and in pain and with cruel expressions. There is sort of literal dripping blood from his hands, <laughs> more and more. So it's vicious. It's like it's a vicious portrayal of him. And it's just, oh, it's wild. <laughs> Isn't it? I think 
it really, uh, as you were saying earlier, how it's almost like it's always pure aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's the point. Like the the Faustian pact is kind of the whole aesthetic of the novel in in a sort of way. Like it doesn't show a lot. It just, <laughs> as you said, shows enough. Yeah. And uh, uh, just after he made the pact, he earned what he he wanted. Basically, mm -hmm. he is immaculate. He is yes. basically forever young, <laughs> and and forever beautiful. And but that's the whole point in a society which always tries to gift and signify uh, sort of futile things. Uh, when he actually earns this kind of invincible beauty and youngness and uh, youthness, he then starts having a sort of this kind of boredom of being so beautiful, basically. Yeah. And then he starts to uh, have this almost, socio almost no, this sociopathical uh, way of like, oh, I did something wrong. So as a normal person should do, I should do that as well to be a better person. Mm -hmm. But that's what we said earlier as well. Like, if you're committing the mistake, I, I mean, everyone commits mistakes, but if you're committing the mistake <laughs> as he did, just like basically bashing the girl that he uh, one day earlier said that he loved and and just going like uh, I can't stay with you anymore because you're terrible you're a terrible actress and and that's it and you ashamed me in front of my the other man and, <laughs> and basically that like the, the this whole uh, masculinity ego uh, destruction yeah. <laughs> so basically it's just completely sociopathical and I was talking earlier to Frank as well like it's not even about the the portrait or himself and his beauty is about seeing the manners and the kind of uh, the modes of society he knows what is the expected answer or, or the expected behavior and he just like he has a bit of a lag to it like <laughs> oh i'm sorry like I shouldn't have treated her that way. I need to be a better person. And then he goes there, and the girl is <laughs> Sibyl is dead by his fault. As you were saying, like it gets even more sociopathical because they then see this as almost like aesthetical literary work. Like, oh my god, that's so tragic. Like. She, mm -hmm. this was this was such a, uh, an episode like it was such a a thing, but it, they are almost like analyzing like a work of art. Yeah. And not like, man, you destroyed the life of the that girl, that woman, that she, family. Yeah, that family. You should just kill herself because you're a moron. But there, there's not such a thing at all in this novel because again, it's all this manners and this way of the aristocracy of thinking that by knowing art and theory and <laughs> things like that like oh so you kill this person but we can analyze it like uh it was a, a tragedy by worthy shapes. of a play yeah worthy of a play so fuck this man you 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 were responsible for someone committing suicide it's it's not beautiful, it's not worthy of anything, it's worthy of you, you going to jail, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and since no one knew his name, he got away stupidly easy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it really is a portrayal of this decadent society. A society that reality is has gone so uh, uninteresting and boring, <laughs> and it's just like a need to aesthetic. Aestheticize it. Yeah, uh, it, it remembers me utterly about Zardos. <laughs> like, it's just this society that the basic human fundamentals have been changed, and then they are just there, like, so what we will do now? <laughs> like, it, 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 that's basically aristocracy in a way with so much power and so much 
responsibility that they have but they don't need to act on it mm -hmm. and so it's basically like living easy living life in easy mode in beginner yeah. mode basically <laughs> yeah and it it, it it does bring me to mind because like since reality is so meaningless and boring like this need to aestheticize it all the time yeah to the point where this this own aesthetic is pointless yeah it's sort of self-destructive it truly is pure decadence yeah in the sense of like total collapse and it brings to mind like it's almost like an aesthetic for no reason at all. Yeah. Like, it, it, it's an aesthetic as a purpose, and that is always doomed because it has no anchor, no reality, really. Be but what it really does bring to mind is, like, it's almost like a, a, a worse or almost as bad third way to, like... Uh, Walter Benjamin, he has that fantastic essay, which is the work of art in the age of technical rep reproduction. Yeah. And he mentions it how, like, if Nazism uh, works with aestheticizing war, then communism needs to politize art. It is the inverse aspect of it. Yeah. It's like, it's not the aesthetic for the aesthetic or for anything else. It's a need to inject or create this art which is imbued and embedded with this politics. Yeah. With this aspect that makes it sort of more impervious to this meaninglessness, to this possible decadence. It is a way of truly using art and thinking a new form of art that is that works beyond this act of like fetishizing war or yeah. fetishizing even art really. Exactly. It is a way of thinking a new form of art and creating it. Yeah. Uh, I I have no qualms about hiding the fact I love Benjamin <laughs> and but I really hadn't thought about this aesthetic aspect so much. Yeah. And I think it really, like, this aestheticizing of nothing, or rather of, like, the entire meaninglessness of life, or trying to create an aesthetic sense to life, it's almost, it's not as violent, but it's just as fatalistic as the, the aestheticizing of fascism. Yeah. But instead of, like, the glory of war, of conquest, of the expansion, the national spirit, and all that shit, it is, like, no, but... There is beauty there, but it's also void and rotten. Yeah. It's like, and, and that's the whole point of the, like the novel. It's like it's a beautiful apple on the outside. Yeah. It's shining. It's glistening, but the inside is completely fucking rotten. Exactly. That that's the perfect metaphor of like Victorian society. Exactly. That that's the imperialism. And, and basically, Europe in the nineteenth century, because it's this whole aristocracy. Uh, living inside these castles and <laughs> works of art in that, in each and every wall, and they know how to talk about art and about periods of uh, of literature, about everything. But they have overanalyzed things in a way that they almost like uh, I don't know the words. I'm sorry, uh, is gotado. Uh, drained. Uh, they they drain every meaning of everything, and at the same time they live such pathetic lives that there's nothing to talk anymore and they insist on talking it again and again and that's the whole point of decadence it's g uh, going up to something that was once like glorified and beautiful and even if it's the same size the same shininess uh, and the same beauty it's old and drained and people <laughs> can't take that shit anymore and and that's the the whole like the whole experience of Dorian Gray, really, he's beautiful and shiny, but he's just drained. He can't take it anymore. He he needs to to try to strive to do things that are not from the aesthetics and are from the basically the soul, which is his portrait. Yeah. But every time he comes to the portrait, it's even worse and worse and worse. And yeah, it's. It's basically uh, it's it's that whole uh, decadence caused by imperialism, basically. Yeah, by this exploitation, by this violence that sustains this entire society. And, and as you were saying, like fascism, like um, basically, I don't know, Nazi fascism. Uh, this promise of conquering the world and this mm -hmm. good, like this better alpha race, the the uh, Aryan race. And but the the whole point is it, it it's 
uh, is sort of doomed in the same way as as we were talking about uh, big things and beautiful uh, in their eyes, beautiful <laughs> things that become drained. Mm -hmm. Because even if um, uh, a fascist re regime conquered all the world, it, it would fall in the same uh, in in the <laughs> same doom of now that we have everything and now that we are here in this in it's the 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 same the same principle of the burden of the aristocracy we have everything we have the money we have the power and yet we're here talking about the same things and we're like it's the fun du siècle is the nobody can take this shit anymore because it's already drained and it's over and and it doesn't mean shit if you have power or a castle or anything because things die and 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 that's the whole point of revolution and that's the whole point of nature basically everything that's once powerful dies and becomes Change. exactly <laughs> it, it, it's the opposite of like any sort of stale and stillness yeah it's change yeah and it, it's really interesting because like one of the only real like sort of discussions in terms of dialogue in the novel, is between uh, Lord Henry and another woman, like a duchess, I think. Uh, <laughs> something worth mentioning. The female characters in this novel are few and, like, so so meaningless, <laughs> with the exception of Sybil. Yeah. Like, she's the only one that has any real memorable, distinctive role. All the others are sort of like, oh, they're sort of dotted here and there. Yeah. So, you know, it's more... Okay, it's a portrait, and it's, I think, the time of this fixture on the men of that time, the men yeah. of this aristocracy. Yeah. And in this dialogue, there are two positions. There's Henry's position of, oh, um, there's this decadence, that's all meaninglessness, it's all about the senses, and the whole trip about Dorian going to the opium den, which is alluded before, but there's an actual particular chapter about that. Yeah. Uh, to dull the soul by means of the senses. <laughs> and to dull the senses by means of the, the soul. soul. Yeah. He repeats that as a fucking mantra. <laughs> uh, shit one. And in, in this particular discussion, the, the woman that Lord Henry is arguing with, she espouses what would be like almost the position of like this future fascism of like oh this progress and the <laughs> development of humanity like this evolutionism yeah that would take its most extreme forms in eugenics in the value of these hierarchies of race of nations and which would easily become fascism yeah it's the whole uh, Spencerist Herbert Spencer uh, evolution perspective. Uh, that would lead, especially in Brazil, but elsewhere, these particularities of eugenics and the superior races and the inferior ones. So it's almost like you either have the current state of things, which is this decadence and this aristocracy dying and killing itself, or you have the other worse or just as bad option, which is fascism. Yeah. So it's like, it's a slightly forced reading, but it's almost like it's not... It's the basis for what would feed into fascism. Yeah. So that's why I think it's a valid reading as well. Because it espouses, like, what are the the actual possibilities for this aristocracy? For these positions of power that, like, are drained, that are self-destructive, that are eating themselves. Yeah. It's either to wallow in that and eventually die and decay, yeah. or espouse this violence, this fascism. Yeah. I, I think that's a great, great uh, reading, and, and and that's the whole point. Like this whole class, this whole aristocracy, thinks that they can prevail. The basic, as you as you put, like they think they they can prevail through change, mm -hmm. but they can't. And that's the whole like the point of uh, bigotry about <laughs> about the aristocracy, like. No, no, we need to cling on this because mm -hmm. uh, even if the it's the end of the world, we we need to still be powerful and we can't let this happen. And that 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 own way of thinking about things was basically what made those. It, it was what created this crisis. Yes, basically, because if they didn't want and didn't plan to have so much power and to enlarge and continue not not having 
any kind of responsibility and thinking about others and just prevailing and just concentrating that power if if they didn't think like that from the beginning they wouldn't have the problem of a crisis of something that's as normal as things beginning and ending yeah it's <laughs> it's like it's the whole thing that uh and that might be a good idea for us to read eventually uh thomas de lampedusa's um uh, the leopard from that novel comes the very famous phrase that like for everything to change for everything to stay the same everything needs to change yeah so it, it is and since they're not even willing to change to sustain themselves it is only pure collapse exactly pure decadence exactly. pure rot really uh, it's their portrait <laughs> yeah it's that portrait that accumulates everything that really does show how like It's all for shit. It's all for not. And all these pretensions, all these positions that supposedly espouse these higher values, this higher position, it's all nothing. It's all rotten. It's all corrupted and sinful and destructive and murderous yeah. and violent. It, in a way, and I, I'm sure this is not a novel reading, <laughs> the portrait of Dorian Gray, the picture is English society. Yeah. Is Victorian society. Yeah. It is that rotten, bloody carcass. That hidden, but... That destroy... That is destroying <laughs> the world. Yeah. And continue to do so. Yeah. It is this violent and destructive society upon the globe. Yeah. And that is something that Wilde has some experience with. <laughs> like, yeah. we... It's something that's not remembered as much, but, like, Ireland really suffered under the British regime. Yeah. Like, the whole thing about the potato famine was so devastating. And, it, like, I'm not Irish, but I'm quite sure that that, like, like it's, some, it's one of those things that remains in the memory of a people, of yeah. a nation, of a place. Yeah. Like, the things that carry on, like, these traumas are not easy things to get over. Yeah. Especially when you're, like, literally being dominated. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's definitely something to take into account, like, and we get back, and I think that can be a good way to sort of bring up a couple of things so we, uh, to wrap up, because we're almost at an, the hour mark, yeah. getting back to the mirror. The, if we think of the novel as a mirror, the portrait isn't a portrait of Dorian, it's a portrait of this English society, it's a mirror towards them. So it, in, in, in one way or another, it makes sense they would be pissed off with the book. Exactly. Even if they didn't fully get it. Yeah, and, and even Oscar Wilde uh, saying, like, uh, it's genius to put the image of a, a really uh, beautiful person. Mm -hmm. Because that's the whole point. Like, it, it's almost inevitable in the, in the beginning of the book, uh, you see this person that oh uh, the the first chapter of the book is basically oh you need to you need to uh to meet him because he's a a completely uh he's a magnificent person and he's beautiful and he's like my inspiration for art and then the first moment that when they meet each other he's playing classical music on the piano it's just this sort of romanticization that even Oscar Wilde knows that he's doing this romanticization to destroy it after basically yeah. and it's really genius because i just imagine the the aristocracy and and people at that time reading this book and seeing this this young man and being like oh i i want to be like dorian ray dorian ray is such a a, a beautiful uh talented person and then it's just the, things go on exactly and that's just the mirror like oh wait you're saying that because i think of that i'm i'm such a bad person like it's the brazilian expression a carapuça serviu <laughs> yeah if the <laughs> What is it? If like the hood fits? Yeah. Or something like that. If the, the cap fits. Yeah. Because <laughs> it, it really is that. Like, so you're identifying yourself with that. You're proving my point. Exactly. <laughs> so what have we learned today? We have learned aristocracies are bad. <laughs> And especially the British one. Yeah. Which is still around. But it... it <laughs> I guess to sort of wrap up, I do want to bring out like the ending of it, because mm -hmm. it's almost like the whole culmination of all of it, of all the, and at times murderous intent of Dorian, 
because he does like the one person he shows the portrait to is the artist. He shows it to Basil. Yeah. And then like is infuriated by Basil trying to like, no, how, Dorian, you should change. You should become better. And like uh, Basil uh, takes the sort of moral stand and uh, Dorian doesn't like that and kills him. <laughs> and has someone get rid of the body for him by blackmail. A person who later commits suicide, <laughs> as we find out. So, again, trail of bodies behind Dorian. Yeah. And he... It, it is so interesting because even with the portrait and his attempts are like, no, but what I'm doing is free, it's moral. It, it, or rather, it doesn't matter if it's, it's moral. It's my life. It's amoral. Yeah, it's yeah. not moral or immoral, it's amoral. Yeah, yeah. Sure, yeah, right. <laughs> but it, it's his doing, it's his own ego, his own individuality who is the right to choose and do it all. Yeah. He should do it all, he should experience it all because of his youth and his beauty. And but he's haunted by the guilt. Yeah. He's haunted by these people who whom he's responsible for murdering, especially especially Sybil and Basil, even if the others he doesn't care or mention much. Yeah. And he that painting haunts him. Yeah. In that sense it's really gothic. Yeah. If like the most haunting and spectral elements aren't as visible in this novel or that present, the painting is sufficient to carry it yeah. all. Yeah. Because it does hold immense power over Dorian. Yeah. Like he wants it gone and he wants it destroyed. At, at yeah. the end he's like, I, I can't do this anymore. I need to be free of my conscience. I need to be free of my past. And the only way he sees of doing it is by destroying the painting. Yeah. That's the only way for him to be free. In in other words, he's trying to destroy his own conscience, his own remorse Soul, and regret. Basically. It's, uh, that's the conclusion he doesn't get to. Yeah. Because... Yeah. The, the point is, uh, even uh, thinking about even sort of a Christian reading, he's trying to not cleanse his sins, but just erase them. Yeah, he doesn't want to think about his sins. He just wants to destroy them. Yeah, there's no sort of redemption. Exactly, exactly. Because he realizes that his inverted commas redemption attempt was <laughs> not a redemption attempt and was only a a growing of his own immense ego. Yeah, <laughs> and as such, like his only solution to do so and to truly be free, uh, whatever that means or whatever he's trying to get at is to destroy his own conscience. Any possibility that reminds him of what he did. Yeah. And that is no cleansing. Yeah, that, exactly. You're absolutely right. Yeah. It only involves trying to, again, the whole thing about the opium, forgetting about it. Exactly. And destroying any sort of memory of it. Yeah. But if... It's, it's that kind of double alienation. He's already alienated of his aging and everything because he's forever young and prince charming and then he just goes and oh so i think i came to the point that i need to destroy my consciousness to be finally free and that's when he commits the mistake of trying to destroy the soul thing that kept him basically uh, in a metaphor alive yeah and uh, as stabbing the portrait he ends up killing himself. Yeah, what what they later find is the painting immaculate and perfect as it always was or was from the beginning and him decrepit old decayed quite literally. Yeah. Uh with a knife in his own heart. Yeah. Much where he attempted to stab the painting. He again, again I think the whole thing is that he he tried to destroy his own soul. And maybe he did, but that was his own physical material destruction as well. Yeah. That staunch materialism, that supreme individualism that was only rooted in the material and the physical was sustained by something else. Something that was rotten and that was collapsing, but he basically put the final nail in his own spiritual and material coffin. Exactly. And as such, he died in a very tragic and gothic <laughs> way that was... Sort of foreseeable from before, <laughs> but it is it, it in that sense the ending is absolutely pathetic in that in the original sort of pathos and tragic and yeah. all that which is foreseen from the very beginning. Like he does give his own soul yeah. away, and when it is destroyed, bye bye Dorian Gray. <laughs> yeah, yeah that. 
I that think was, that's it. Yeah, that was fun. I I I really enjoyed talking about like the whole yeah. aesthetics of it. I think. Yeah, I I even liked the book more after talking about it with you. Oh, I'm glad that that's always good. That's always good. Yeah. Uh, we don't. I, eventually, we'll. I've said this before. Eventually, we'll have to do something bad. Yeah. But <laughs> even when we disagree, it's good that. Uh, yeah. It, it, it's it's a fun discussion. Yeah, and I think exactly. it was. I. I didn't really think that much about this, uh, how he was so sociopathic yeah. or figured in this aesthetic concern, but it really does sort of go to show like this meaninglessness yeah. and how it's this aristocracy was doomed from the very start and sort of like Dorian and Lord Henry, they're just the most visible symptoms of it. <laughs> exactly. The others are just in some further form of denial. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's... That's the the picture of Dorian Gray. Yeah, thank you really much for listening. It's yeah. always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us again as we go once again into gothic fiction. Yeah. Uh, expect some more. Eventually we'll get to it. it. It's really fun to talk about. Yeah, yeah. It's great. And and yeah, I this was a blast. This was a blast. So thank you so much for listening, everyone. If you would like, please leave an iTunes review. That is the usually the best place for leaving reviews. Yeah. And it always helps with sharing the show and it reaching a wider audience, which is always good. Like, we, we do this because we want to share with, with you all. Yeah. Uh, and that's fun. Other than that, if you could, if, and if you'd like, you'd like to follow us on Twitter, at LeftPagePod. I share a bunch of stuff there, uh, talk to other podcasters and all whatnot. I recently put up, some of like my uh, four books of fiction that sort of uh, shaped who I am <laughs> what, or interesting stuff. So go <laughs> check it out. And uh, yeah, mo- lots of Brazilian stuff and a bunch of it is translated uh, of the two. Uh, two are, one isn't, but again, it's worth it. Yeah. And yeah, if you could and would like to support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash left page. Uh, I am about to add, by the time this goes out, I will have already added the latest uh, reading corner. If there's anything you've read and or want to just write about yeah. that you've read lately, yeah. just write me a, a bit of okay. text, Bruno, and uh, yeah. I'm sure I can add yours there too, yeah. uh, gladly. And I'll add mine as well. Uh, I have some interesting stuff to talk about. Uh, other than that, we, we have some poetry stuff that we're figuring out and that should be out soon. Yeah. Things were a little hectic with the start of the year and all that, but it's all, it's all getting worked out. No need to worry. Sorry about the delays, but it will, it will be fine. We yeah. promise. <laughs> At the very least, the episodes are coming out regularly, so that's, that's a good start. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all that being said, uh, thank you so much for everything, everyone. It, it is all your support, all your listenership. It, it is. It has been changing our lives, and yeah. it has been incredible. Thank you so, 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 so much. So thank you so much for listening. Until the next one.
and he has a very close friend who's a pa fantastic painter, which is Basil Hall Howard. And b b b <laughs> let's try again. But ba Basil, Basil, probably Basil. Basil, yeah. Oh, I have to cut a lot of that. <laughs> Do it.